0: So, how many of you either have had children or you were a child once? (laughs) So, if your memory stretches back far enough, or if you're currently in this state, I have some children, and spitting is a thing that children need to learn rules about, right? When... When a certain child, Sloan or others, discovers (laughs) spitting, it's funny how he doesn't know that spitting on someone, spitting in the living room, that these things just aren't appropriate. It seems like Jesus must not have had very good parents (laughs) because they didn't teach him common social rules of decorum, right? Here he is. Healing a guy, but instead we find him spitting. It's a a strange story. What's going on here? Why is Jesus doing this? Well, let's look. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. Uh, Maps. If any of you have been in other parts of the world, you need to know that not everyone envisions the United States as the center of the universe. In fact, in Asia, when they make a map, oftentimes Asia's in the center, and guess who gets cut between the left and the right end sides of the map? And There was back in 1979 a really cheeky Australian, which is not an oxymoron. Um, he developed a map. Uh, he got tired of his friends picking on him from being from the bottom of the world, so he, put, he did a south-up map, um, with Australia in the center, and he started asking his American friends, how does it feel to be on the bottom all the time, um, with Australia right in the middle. Uh, maps can be very politically loaded mechanisms. I mean, if you don't believe this, if you ever travel to Korea a few years ago, I was in, in Korea in that little village that straddles the DMZ, where on one side of the building is a North Korean soldier in a karate stance and on the other side of the building is a South Korean soldier and both of them, half their bodies behind the building and the other half and they're wearing sunglasses so that they can look in each other's eye 24-7. You can go into this building and you can actually, it's the only place where you're allowed to step on either side. There's a line painted through the middle of the building. Um... In in the great wisdom of the victors of of a war, when they drew the line that made the DMZ, um, and they tried to act like geography doesn't matter, they ripped apart families. And there, there are people I was with in South Korea who they don't look at the North Koreans as their enemy. They think that's their family members who in one fell swoop in the great wisdom of the West, we drew a line and said, if you step over the line, we'll kill you. Geography is very political. And so when Mark takes up precious words of Holy Scripture to give this convoluted geographic information, you need to stop reading this Bible like somebody who's read it your whole life and no longer knows that it's volatile. And you need to slow down and maybe look at a map. And when you do, you'll see that this is a strange, circuitous route. Jesus starts in Tyre, goes about 20 miles north to Sidon. In fact, in my Bible, Sidon is so far north, the little map in the back of the journeys of Jesus doesn't even get to Sidon. It's the farthest north that he travels in Mark's Gospel. And then he goes on this long eastwardly trek and south trek until he's around the Sea of Galilee and the Decapolis. And all of this 120-mile horseshoe-shaped... Adventure is Jesus giving Palestine a wide berth because it's gotten very hot for him. And he's just gone on record as saying the kingdom of God is open to non-Jews. And now he's proving it with a journey through a non-Jewish world that's actually a notorious non-Jewish part of the world. Why is Mark taking such great pains to describe this strange journey Jesus, what's going on in this story? Let's look at it together. Verse 32 they brought to Jesus a man who was deaf and had a strain, had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. Now, depending on the Bible you're reading, If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to get one and to read it. It's it's worth it, okay? Depending on your translation here, it might say in verse 32 that the man was deaf and could hardly speak. Some of the older translations say he was deaf and dumb. It's not a comment on his intelligence. It's a comment on his ability to speak or not. It's actually an interesting word. It's a very rare word in the Bible. It's only used twice in all of the Bible. And and, and, and literally, it gives this image of someone who's able to make noises, but they can't be coherent. Have you ever been around a person that's deaf and hearing them try to articulate speech? It's a a vivid image. Now, why is Mark using that word? Several reasons. You'll discover one later that's really huge. But right now, he's trying to get into your imagination. He wants you to hear that sound of that deaf person trying to articulate. And and can you see this huge cacophonous crowd, right? Crowds of people. And all of a sudden some unnamed individuals are pushing this guy up to the front of the crowd, pushing him to Jesus. This guy who's probably not in the mood to be in the front of a crowd. If it's it's, he's not already wearing a t-shirt that says, I'm a freak, I don't fit in, I can't do what everybody else can do and now there's a huge crowd and they're shoving him to Jesus and then what does Jesus do? Look in verse 33. He takes him aside. What an incredible act of compassion. Jesus didn't see this guy like some tele-evangelist, super-healer is just a problem in the crowd that he can deal with in front of everybody to get some sort of stroke out of it. He saw an individual. He's removing this guy from the crowd because he refuses to see this guy's brokenness as the sum total of this guy. He sees that this guy is a person, a unique individual, and then... Jesus does the most incredible thing. It's the most elaborate healing in all of the Gospels. No less than seven steps. Takes him aside, puts his fingers in his ears, spits, touches his tongue, sighs or groans, depending on your translation, looks up to heaven, cries out. In Aramaic, maybe Hebrew, we're not sure. The origin of the word, ephetha. It's as if Jesus is speaking in sign language. Can you see this in your mind's eye? And so often Jesus healed in other ways. But why this way in this moment? I mean, he's got this guy alone and he's going slow. It's as if he wants this guy to know, here's what I'm doing. Here's what is about to happen. This is compassion. And he touches him. Jesus does this all through the gospel. He's always touching people who are unclean. Nobody else will touch. He's touching this guy. It's it's physical contact with a needy person. Can you see it? Can you see in your mind's eye Jesus refusing to minister from a safe distance? And can you hear Jesus groan? Can you hear his sigh? This is a deep emotional involvement and response. It isn't for show. It's Jesus' grief over the way sin is ravaging individuals. He's moved with compassion. He hates what he sees. He hates the suffering this guy has lived his whole life through. And can you hear Jesus say this word? Ephetha. I mean, obviously, Mark wants you to see it in your mind's eye because he quotes another language. It's as if Mark, we're pretty sure, was getting his information from Peter, a first-hand witness. It's as if Peter had this word burned into his memory. Peter can still hear Jesus saying it, he was there. He can still see all of this. When you're with somebody who's telling a true story, you sometimes see them lose themselves as they go back into the... That's what's going on here. Love seeks intimacy. Here is love in the flesh seeking intimacy. Intimacy tangible touch of Jesus. What an incredible picture of the intimate compassion that Jesus has for Michelle. Mark is writing this story with an ideology, with an agenda, with a a purpose, and he's wanting Jeremy to know and see. Christ knows Jeremy. He doesn't know a faceless Billions of people. What an incredible demonstration of the fellowship that Mike Deaton has with the Christ. This fellowship that any Christian can experience with God through faith. Jesus has intimate compassion. And then a strange thing happens. After healing this guy and giving this guy the ability to talk, he then tells this guy, don't talk. Do you get the irony? I mean, of all things, to say to someone who has not ever been able to talk, now stop. I mean, you should stop right there. I mean, the problem with many of us is that we've read the Bible so long, we no longer read the Bible. We just skim over the words and we don't get involved. What, what would you do at You've never been able to talk, all of a sudden you can talk, don't talk. Before it was can't talk, now it's don't talk? What's going on here? Why does Jesus do this? Look at verse 36, he charged them to tell no one, as if Glenn can talk. He's never been able to talk, and Mike asked Glenn, what's going on? And Glenn's like, not going to say anything? Why does Jesus do this? And it's not just here. Three times already in Mark's gospel, he has commanded demons to be silent about who he is. Four times in Mark's gospel, after performing various miracles like this one, he commands silence from the people who experience the miracle or the witnesses. Two times in Mark's gospel, we find Jesus withdrawing from the crowds because he doesn't want people to, to see him or to detect him. And then there are all the times in Mark's gospel where Jesus talks in these cryptic parables who nobody can understand until he's in a house afterwards. That's a a theme in Mark's gospel. Alone with his disciples, huddled up in a little circle. And then he gives the explanation. What's this secrecy business all about? (laughs) And the irony is, verse 36, but the more he charged them to tell no one, the more they zealously proclaimed it. In the Greek, that word proclaimed, it's the same word. It's a very specific word. It's a formal word that elsewhere is translated preached. They didn't just talk about it. They preached about it. (laughs) The news didn't just leak out. It poured out. People simply couldn't stop talking about what they'd seen Jesus doing. What's going on here? What's going on here is actually the heart ...of Mark's gospel. It's at the heart... ...of what Mark is showing us... ...about Jesus. You see, taking the side... ...the guy aside to be alone with him... ...was about compassion... ...but it wasn't only about compassion. There's something else. What Jesus was doing... ...was dangerous... The last time a guy in Mark's gospel is accused of being a prophet, he's at a banquet, but it's his head on a platter at a banquet. The last time a guy is accused of being a prophet, Herod chops his head off and brings his head to a banquet on a platter. And here is Jesus holding banquet. Here is Jesus and word is already getting out about him to the religious leaders who a little bit later we know are the ones who collude with Rome and crucify him. And Herod, who's already murdered one prophet, has already gotten news of Jesus. The last question we heard from Herod in the Mark's Gospel is, who is Jesus? You do not want Herod asking that question if he suspects you're a threat. To be doing Things of a prophet was to court disaster. And yet Jesus' mission to bring God's kingdom in power had to go forward. You see, the secrecy issue, it's because Jesus is walking a tightrope. He needs to guard his identity from premature and false understandings. Until the cross... All speculations about who Jesus is are either incomplete or false. You see, they're starting to connect the dots, but the problem is they don't have the cross. And until you've got the cross, you don't have the Messiah. You have your homeboy that you make into your image. Jesus was refusing to be seen by the categories of their predisposed understanding of who the Messiah is. Uh, Why? Here we don't know. We've got to speculate. And I think Mark wants us to speculate. He wants us to get involved. Apparently, Jesus maybe was hoping for a bit more time before he had to draw things to a head. Perhaps he was intending to travel around for some while yet, gathering some support, giving more of his beloved but obstinate Galileans time. A chance to hear his message and to turn their ideas around. But Mark's story to this point has been full of times when Jesus hopes to be alone, to escape the crowds, only to find that they're waiting for him wherever he goes. What must have been going through Jesus' mind right now? Can you imagine? Surely he's beginning to realize this train can't be stopped. Just a few more of these miracles and it'll be done. Verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf and the mute Speak. Now we're getting to the point of Mark's story. Like so many of Jesus' miracles in Mark, Jesus, in healing this man, is actually operating on multiple levels. There's the man, and Jesus' compassion for this particular person and his brokenness. And I hope you can still see Jesus taking him aside and slowly, almost in sign language, lovingly healing him. But it's the crowd's response to the miracle that Mark clues you and I in on the fact that something deeper is going on. There's a word in verse 37. It's used twice in Greek. It's poeo. It means to do or to make. And Mark is doing some fancy stuff with this word in verse thirty-seven. He has done all things well. That's the word poeo. Mark uses the tense of the word, the perfect tense. You can different tenses in the Greek language that Mark is using, and the perfect tense is when something was done in the past and has continuing effects into the future. And Mark is saying to his, con- his audience, he's writing this 30 years after the fact, and he, and he uses a, a, a tense of the word to say that what Jesus did to this guy is still affecting you and me today. It has continuing effects. Some 30 years later, the reverberations are still playing out. And God is saying to us, some 2,000 years later, what happened there is actually still having ripple effects in the fabric of the universe. Not just its meaning, but stay with me here. Something is happening today because of that. Uh, Then he uses the word again in the second half of verse 37. He even makes, that's the word poeo, you can't see it in English, but it's there in Greek, he makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This time same word in the original Greek text, but this time it's in the present tense. Jesus is still working miracles. 30 years later, Jesus has ascended into heaven, and Mark is saying he is still doing something. In our day, he's still doing so- he's still working miracles of revelation. He's still loosening up tongues. And there's a third issue going on here. Because you see what this crowd is saying is actually a quote. It's a paraphrase, but it's a quote from the first chapter of the Bible. The Greek word poieo is the dominant word in Genesis chapter 1. Like our picture, where the God of the universe is making All things. It's the word used to to describe God's activity of creating. But get this the phrase, He has done all things well, is actually a quote from their copy of Genesis 1, which was a Greek translation of verse 31. He does all things well is the Greek translation of Genesis 1.31. In your Bible it says, Behold, he saw everything that he made and it was very good. Their Greek translation was, He does all things well. Mark is showing us that Jesus' miracle power is a signpost pointing to who Jesus is. That he is the one who who way back in the beginning said, let there be light. And there was light. That who is touching this guy in the ear? Is God condensing himself to flesh? The same God who created all things. But here's the deal. Mark is not only saying that Jesus is giving us a sign pointing to who he is, Mark is also t- telling us that here in the form of Jesus Christ is the architect of the universe bringing new creation. Look at, the, look at the last phrase of verse 37. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now they're, they're quoting a different verse from the Old Testament, right? What are they quoting there? Does anybody know? We've already heard it. Isaiah 35. Then, Isaiah 35 verse 5. Then. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute, sing for joy. Like I said, this is Mark's main point. By the way, that word I told you earlier is a weird word about um, his muteness, that it's only used twice in the Bible. You know where the only only other time it's used in all the Bible is? Isaiah 35 verse 5 and verse 6. Mark picks and lets us know that they're using the oddest word you can use for being mute. There's lots of words at their disposal because they are quoting. And what are we learning? That moment, it says at the beginning of verse 5 in Isaiah 35, then, he's saying the then has arrived. This is where we are. Then. When God begins to solve the problems of the universe, then these things are going to start happening. And guess what? It says in the beginning, Lebanon, right? It talks about Lebanon in verse 1. And in our psalm, did you get this? In our psalm, we said that the, the cedars of Lebanon will be stripped for joy. Guess where Tyre and Sidon are? That's Lebanon. That's why Mark was taking such careful pains to give us all these geographic notes because Mark is saying the moment has come. We're there. God Himself has come in flesh and This is the point of every verse of Mark that we've looked at since we started gathering together on Ash Wednesday, looking at these passages when we saw Jesus in the wilderness, breaking the bread and feeding the thousands, all all those verses we've been looking at over the last four and five weeks. This is the great theme of Scripture. And it's, it's what gives meaning and purpose to all of life. It's the theme present in a thousand pages of the Bible. It's celebrated in the poetry and the song of Isaiah and the Psalms. It's articulated by Paul in the rich and dense theology of his letter to the Romans. It's the theme lived out by the Lord Christ himself on page after page of the gospel. It is the new creation. It's the work we rededicate ourselves to every Sunday when we gather here in worship. There's a new world coming and God has already begun to create it. The God whom we worship, the God in whom we believe, He is the creator of the world and His name is Jesus. And He will one day Wipe away every tear from our eyes and put everything right. And don't drift off into some platonic spiritualization of that. Friends' shoulders will be healed. In my speech impediment, You know, for seven years I took speech to try to learn how to say my R so didn't say Boyd but bird or twee but tree and every now and then it comes out. Or the crap that I confess to God every Sunday kneeling on my knees. One day, it will be healed. One day, He's going to fix me and make me right. And He's already begun this work. That's what Mark was saying. He was saying, holy cow, there's more going on here than just some guy getting healed. Oh, it's that, but it's that for all of us. This is the solid belief that forms the bedrock of the Christian faith that God will abolish not the universe, but the brokenness in the universe. That space and time and matter is not going to be something we escape. It's going to be something that is healed. He is going to renew it, to restore it. He's going to fill this world with joy and purpose and delight. He's going to take away from it everything that is corrupting and defacing it. This is what Isaiah said in chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice. Look, don't spiritualize that. Deserts. Deserts are going to be transformed into verdant places. The last book of the Bible ends not with the company of the saved being yanked out of creation, carried off to some Casper convention in the sky, where we float around with golden harp. Who wants to do that? If that's what it is, I really don't want it. I like tickling my children too much. I really like coffee. (laughs) I do not want an existence where I'm denied physical pleasures. Do you? The last book of the Bible doesn't end with the company of the saved being taken up in heaven, but with the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. We sang it twice. And Jesus will be satisfied when heaven and earth are one. This is my father's world. That's the last line of the song. That's what it means to say this is my father's world. means he's not giving up on it. He's going to be satisfied when it's healed. When heaven and earth are brought together again. When God's new creation is here in which everything that is true and lovely and of good report will be vindicated and enhanced and set free from all sorrow and pain. God himself, it says in Revelation, what? Will wipe Katrina's tears from her eyes. And can you see God himself touching that man's ears? That's what that was. It was was just an hors d'oeuvre. The physical touch of Jesus isn't just a symbol. It's not just a sign. It was an appetizer. It was a foretaste of when the same hand comes to Jesse and wipes the tears from her eyes. One of the great difficulties in preaching the gospel in our day is that everyone assumes the name of the game is ultimately to escape this place and to go to heaven when you die. As if that's the last act of the drama. But that is wrong. Heaven is important. It's just not the end of the world. God will make new heavens and new earth and give us new bodies. That's what you look at Jesus. He's caring for this man's body because he's interested in his body and his soul. And the same with you. He will give us new bodies. Why? So that Fran can reach all the way up on her tiptoes and take fruit from the tree. See, he's giving us new bodies so that we can delight and enjoy a new creation. And the good news of the Christian gospel is that this new world, this new creation has already begun. And it began when Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead on that first Easter morning having faced And defeated our double enemy, sin and death. Everything that has corrupted and defaced God's lovely creation will be removed and it is already beginning. What I'm saying is that when Jesus healed this man, he actually healed the man. But it's in the response of the crowd that we see that Jesus healed this man because Jesus is the bearer of the kingdom of God. The new creation. And Mark is telling this story to his audience in Rome 30 years after the event in order to open the eyes of his congregation to something. And God is trying to open our eyes today to something. What is he showing us? He's showing us that it is hard to see and to hear God. We are deaf to God. See, I mean, in this story, you, me, our neighbors, we're that man. We are deaf to God. We cannot hear Him. We, we grow up in this life and we wake up one day and we are a thousand miles from our Creator. And you can be like the disciples. You can be in close, constant contact with the things of God. You can be a member of a church. You can serve communion. You can be a preacher and preach the gospel. You can grow up in church. You can be in close, constant contact, just like the disciples, and still be deaf, and still be mute and dumb. You can still be impaired. Others, like the Syrophoenician woman, can be nowhere near the things of God. And God can open your eyes. And He can open your ears. I think Mark is saying to his congregations in Rome, he's saying, some of you, faith is so hard. I think God is saying to some of you this morning, Hey, I know it's hard. I know it's hard to see me. I know it's hard to hear me. I know it's hard to trust me. But just like this guy, in response to the touch of Jesus, you can be opened in your hearing to the things of God. You see, God designed the human body not just with physical senses. He also created us with a marvelous spiritual capacity to see Him and to hear Him and to relate to Him. And it's these interior faculties that have been disabled and broken by sin. We have a severe communication block between us and God. But Jesus... Heals us. And some of you know this. You can look back at a time in your life when you were deaf to God in Christ. When you did not know Him. And God came in. Matt, when he was in college. God came into his life and touched his ears. And Matt, all of a sudden, his faith in Christ came alive. And now Matt sees Christ and he hears Christ. Jesus' healings in the gospel of the blind and the deaf, the lame, this is a sign of Jesus' restoration of humanity to the fullness of life so that humans can see and hear Him. And now by the grace of God, by God's grace, I hope one day you get a chance to hear David and Anita's story about how their faith came to life. It's incredible. And by God's grace, we are able to hear God's voice in our hearts and sing His praises and proclaim His mighty deeds. Now, there are many people in our town who can't. You've got friends and neighbors and associates who are deaf to the life that God offers, to the bread of life. They've not tasted it. They don't sing the praises of Christ. They are deaf to the heavenly things of God, things which are true and worthy of joy. And my question for you is, will you be the people in the crowd? Will you do to them what these people did out of mercy and compassion for their friend? Will you bring them to Christ? He alone can unstop their ears and loosen their tongues. There are so many in your life whose tongues are tied. They cannot praise the true God in Christ. Will you bring them to Jesus so that he can touch their tongues? We're in the middle of Lent. But Easter is coming. One of the reasons we've taken out the couch and these back chairs is because now we can open up our room and now we can put 140 chairs in here. To do that, we're going to have to eliminate our our ability to kneel until we get into a new building. But that's a price to pay that's worth it for you to bring people you know to the Christ who can unstop their ears And loosen their tongues. Can you see it in your mind? The crowds, these people bringing their friend who's deaf and mute, bringing him to Jesus and Jesus being so kind. Taking him aside, putting his fingers into this man's ears and then spitting. (laughs) People in Jesus' day wouldn't have laughed, it wouldn't have been weird. Mark's audience for them spitting in this context would have been no surprise in the Mediterranean world. Very different than when my son spits in the living room, and I'm like, Slung, are you an animal? Or are you a... Oh, you're, you're a seven-year-old." They understood that his spit was charged, like his touch, with his holiness. Jesus spits on his finger, touches the man's tongue. Do you see it? Do you see a foretaste of what is about to happen in this room? When Jesus puts his blood on your tongue. When you come to the table. And you open your mouth. And the architect of the universe. The hands that formed and fashioned you will put his blood on your tongue. And Christ himself will give himself to you really in an act of intimate compassion. And you know what we're going to do in response to the Lord's Supper? We're going to sing his praises. It's appropriate, isn't it? We will not be stopped And so many people in your life need you to bring them to the Christ. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes?